according to the um, conventions of time, uh, today is Saturday, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> this part of the world, according to these uh, local conventions, today is Saturday, and uh, so this means that we've been together for more than a week. Whether one feels that's just been a finger snap, or whether it's been an eternity, or both. <laughs> an eternity that's gone by in a flash. We have uh, been together, we've formed this uh, little community, this uh, um, collective, this Dhamma collective, and uh, been on this, this journey together for this time. And uh, talking with um, people in the various um, group interviews in the last uh, few days. And it's also uh, naturally come up about um, the possibilities of life after the retreat has come to an end. But, uh, as we know, all things are impermanent. You've heard that before. Anicca, Vata, Sankara. So, uh, and we know on the the schedule of things, uh, the um, the twelfth of uh, September, this uh, time together is due to to close, and we go our separate ways according to the the, the plan of things. So it's natural enough for the mind to to consider. Well, this is so this is so great uh, the mind can be so peaceful this is so delightful just when they, when they bring the breakfast trays in every day i find myself saying yeah another day in paradise <laughs> the the english weather gods have got the uh, got it turned up to 11 <laughs> with a glorious uh, english summer and uh, the um, uh, this time together is very beautiful, very benign. It couldn't have more perfect, uh, supportive conditions for uh, for meditation. Noble company, everyone uh, working very hard, being very disciplined, quiet, contained. Um, wonderful. Uh, support team, the managers and the cooks and everybody and pulling together in a very harmonious and experienced way to to support our time together so the ship runs perfectly smoothly. And uh, so that the, the downside of that, even though that is very delightful and and fine, the downside of that, the um, the Adinava, the liability of that is then we become uh, deeply attached and we're, might, or some of us might already be thinking, oh no, next week, he's talking about the end already. You can always smell the underground. <laughs> it sw swallows us up and uh, hurls us around in the bowels of London. You can uh, feel that, that, that list of things to do, that humongous pile of emails that have been stacking up in the uh, the in tray uh, 
And so that feeling of, of attachment, oh, I want this to go on forever, oh no, that horrible other world out there. Um, and so this would be an unskillful uh, use of this time and this situation. Uh, understandable enough, but also not very helpful. We're not, we don't create these retreat environments in order to compound our attachments and create more causes for suffering. <laughs> That's not the point. Uh, it might be an, a, an unexpected side effect, um, but it's not the point. Uh, but, and as I, I've said a couple of times along the way, in uh, various of the conversations, uh, these retreat situations, I, I see this more like a, um, if you're learning a musical instrument, it's sitting in the music room with the piano and doing your doing your five-finger exercises, you're doing your scales, you know, uh, because the room is, is contained, there's nothing else going on, it's just you and the piano and <laughs> just uh, uh, ideal conditions so that uh, you, you teach your fingers where to go, so that uh, you learn the lessons that you need to, uh, to learn in order to master the instrument. But the, the real creation of music and the uh, engagement with, with musical, uh, say, uh, skill is outside of the music room. It's not uh, we, we don't sit in the little enclosed, uh, sterilized chamber in order to to uh, be there forever, or to make that the only environment in which we can play. But we we do that. We we create these special sterilized conditions, uh, an operating theatre, in order to carry out a particular kind of uh, task or to develop a particular skill. But the usefulness of that is is how we use that skill outside of the music room. It's like coming out of the operating theater and then <laughs> going about your your everyday life as a, as a healthy being once again. So uh, uh, this is the, the uh, uh, I feel is a more helpful, useful way to relate to the retreat environment, uh, not as the sort of, um, you know, the perfect living situation that um, we, we grasp every opportunity we can to, to get hold of and we resent everything else and that Life outside of the, of the retreat is a, a sort of you know, tawdry, second-rate, <laughs> unloved uh, uh, way of life that we, we begrudge and we're just sort of counting the days till we can come back on retreat again. Uh, if we're doing that, then we're, we're creating misery for ourselves. And so that, uh, as uh, you know, Lumpur Cha would often say that uh, you know, the point of practicing meditation, doing formal meditation practice, is so that you learn the skills that you can you can uh, take with you uh, out into the 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 uh, the home, into the schoolyard, into the, the onto the farm, into the office, out onto the road. You know that uh, the the real usefulness of, of the lessons we learn in an environment like this is um, uh, born out. It, it manifests. It's embodied in how we live with our. Um, uh, fellow human beings, how we get along with the family, reconvening with the the the, the husband, the kids, the parents, the siblings. And, and even as I say those words, I can imagine some of you thinking, "Oh yes, right, them." <laughs> oh dear. And uh, but the. This, uh, I feel, is is the most important thing. If we're not trying to create meditation as a sort of little 
isolation chamber that we can go off and inhabit and keep out the, you know, the cruel world can be kept at bay and we can stay in our little bubble uh, and uh, and uh, feel uh, nice and and, uh, and safe in, inside this isolation chamber but rather it's a it's a, a, a training environment so that we can go out from here and then the skills that we we've learnt we can apply in the uh, in the the rough and tumble of our everyday life living um, in the, the working world with the family negotiating with the the, uh, the uh, our fellow beings on the M25 Spreading loving kindness on the London Underground, <laughs> going through airports, you know, traveling long distances, sitting in long business meetings. Uh, yeah, that's that's being able to uh, carry the the um, the practice into those situations. Uh, in a way, it shouldn't be a surprise that, that that's, that's the point of it, because. As I've been saying over and over again, the world is in the mind. It's not just the world of Amravati or the world of the Shrine Room or the world of the meadow is in your mind, but you know, the world of your your uh, your company is in your mind. And, you know, the business meetings are in your mind too. The London Underground is in is in our minds also. The uh, the various um, aspects of of our world it all is here in the same place, and so that even though our bodies might be traveling back to Germany or to Ireland or to Thailand or to you know, Sri Lanka or other places. Or staying here at Amaravati. <laughs> it's just the perception changing, isn't it? It's not like Amaravati is the real place and then the, the, uh, um, the staff room at your school is, not in, is somehow an inferior reality. The the Dhamma can't be found in your school, or can't be found on the M25, or or the uh, Germany or Thailand is outside the scope of of um, mindfulness or wisdom. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Perception of Thailand or or Ireland or Germany or America, Scotland, it's just another perception. It's all happening in the same place. So this is one of the the, the teachings I've been uh, addressing and, and uh, encouraging to um, to develop uh, that we can definitely use uh, as the the perception of the body uh, moving outside of the boundaries of, of Amaravati is, is experienced as we perceive that our <coughs> body is getting into cars and trains and planes and going other places. That uh, uh, just as you're pulling out of the drive of Amaravati, just to recognise, oh. Yeah, it's not that uh, anybody is really going anywhere. There are just perceptions of mind that are changing. In 1983, uh, I had asked permission from uh, uh, to to go on a long walk through England, uh, living at Chidhurst Monastery. And, I'd, uh, and uh, we had just started to um, get the, uh, the tradition of Walking on Tudong, long long distance walks, um, living in the countryside and living on alms food. Um, that uh, that tradition was just being started up in this country, um, and uh, so I'd asked permission to, to make a, a a long walk between Chithurst and uh, and Harnham up in Northumberland, and um, so uh, 
uh, Ajahn Sumedho had kindly given me permission to go, and so there was a number of months of preparation and sort of getting my gear together. I, I made a pair of, uh, of leather sandals, and, and with the help of a, another monk who was a, who'd been a shoemaker before uh, before he was ordained, <laughs> and uh, working out the something of the route that we would take through the through the country, we had about half a dozen different people who'd made invitations and it made a very wiggly route all through England. So even though Chithurst to Harnham as the crow flies is about 400 miles, the route we took ended up being about 830. So a very windy route. <laughs> the night we went to Beachy Head by way of Goodwin Sands. So it was, um, it was a long journey and so my mind was filled with all sorts of preparations and hoping it was going to all go well and and figuring out uh, what gear we should have with us, and and uh, the mind very much fixed on the idea of, of this big journey up ahead and, and uh, setting forth. And uh, the morning that we, we left, myself and Nick Scott, the, the morning that we left from Chithurst Monastery in May of 1983, uh, one comment that really stuck with me uh, that, that Lumpur said was, actually, there's nobody going anywhere. There are just conditions of mind that are changing. And uh, it was one of those, oh yes, <laughs> of course. And even though I'd heard those kind of words many times before, uh, the, the contrast between that clear wisdom teaching and the, yeah, but I'm actually going somewhere, <laughs> that, that becoming feeling, it was a wonderful contrast. It held up a mirror to that. And so as we made the journey, um, I kept recollecting that. I kept bringing that same uh, recollection to mind. You know, even as the feet, there's a perception of the feet moving along and the blisters arising and passing away and the uh, different uh, experiences of sun and rain and, and so forth. Just to remember, actually, there's, there isn't anybody going anywhere. <laughs> there's just conditions of mind that are changing. Because as we've as you've been noticing and reflecting, uh, wherever you go, every place where you go, it's always here. As we perceive the body walking up and down on the meditation path. You start at one end of the path and you're here. There's the perception of the body walking for 25 yards and then, where are you? Here. <laughs> you turn around, you walk again and then as you, even as you're walking, where are you? As you're walking, you're here. You're here. We're always here. So that uh, uh, that recollection of uh, even as you got yeah, but I, I've got plans. I've got a plane to catch. I've got. <laughs> I have actually got to cross borders. I, I mean, let's be sensible. Come on, let's be let's be reasonable. Be practical, Ajahn. You know, I actually have got a plane to catch. I've got to, there's a ferry I have to get onto. You know. Let's be realistic. None of this sort of ultimate Dharma nonsense. I really, I really have to go somewhere. But uh, even though that we're, we're, we're say, uh, respecting those practical necessities, and yes, there are you know, bags to check in and, and uh, schedules to meet. Still, even standing in the queue at the check-in at the, at the airport, where are you? You're here on the plane. You're here. When you get off the plane in, in, in Germany or Thailand or Ireland or 
wherever it might be, USA. Where are you? Here. <laughs> it's always here. So the world happens in our mind. And that uh, as the bodies, the perception of the body is moving around, going about our different activities, just to, to recollect that, to, that, that's still available to us, that's still accessible, regardless of the complexity of things that are being perceived, regardless of, of how uh, comfortable or uncomfortable, uh, familiar or unfamiliar the situation is. There's always that quality of, of, uh, of presence and the, the actuality of the world happening in our minds, which brings the attention to, to, to this moment, which keeps all of our experience in, in context. And it, uh, as, uh, as people have been seeing, as we've been talking about, this is a direct and radical way of, of cutting the, the stream of becoming, of, of stopping, the stream of becoming, of me going somewhere. That right there, this is that, that there's a, a letting go of that, and uh, and in that letting go and recognizing the quality of of presence and uh, timelessness, then there's that that intuition in the heart. All oh, right, nibbana is the cessation of becoming. When that me going somewhere is let go of, then right here is peacefulness. Now, even though that um, uh, we can we can develop that whilst the, there are the perceptions of the of the body in motion, it can also be um, we can make use of just being still, being physically still. And so many uh, many of us have a a sense of our life being very busy, just one thing after another. We have a, a, from the, from the moment we get up, we're just um, racing into the next thing. You know, you know, throwing down some some uh, breakfast and getting into the car or getting onto the the bus or the the, uh, the train and getting to work and you know, uh, following a schedule and one thing after another after another. Even if we're retired, <laughs> often people almost invariably say once they're retired, their days get even more full and busy than when they were in their working life. So uh, one of the simple practices that I like to encourage, particularly if you have got that sense of of uh, busyness and non-stopness in your days, is to develop stopping points, little uh, what I like to call micro meditations. And uh, these are, are um, uh, very simple things to do, that, and they really are micro. So when you are, say, getting up in the morning and you're um, just going into the, the, the kitchen to, to get your get your breakfast together. Before you before you touch the, the tap or the toaster or the kettle, just stop. Just stand in the middle of your kitchen. And you might at this point be thinking, well what <laughs> what are my family going to think about this? <laughs> Don't worry about that for the time being. But just uh, if you uh, come into the kitchen and just stop. Before you do anything, before you touch anything, just just stand there. And if you really, if you want to have a um, uh, a, a a kind of a clear sense of a peacefulness and a, and a support for this uh, this kind of breaking of the streams of becoming, just stop and and don't move. Just stand there for five seconds. And it's very striking how once you're when when you're in the middle of something, if you just stop 
One, two, three, four, five. Five seconds is a long time. <laughs> Just to stop. And then, okay, put the kettle on. <laughs> okay, get the toaster going. <clears throat> and then through the day, and at different times where where we can just stop and be still, and and it's so striking when we just take a moment to just unplug the the momentum of the thing that we believe that we're doing, and just to attend to the present. When you get into the car, sitting down in the in the driver's seat, there's no law that says you have to turn the ignition as soon as you've got your seatbelt on or as soon as you got the door closed. And it's not required by any government anywhere on the planet. It says you have to turn the key and get the engine going as soon as you sit in the car. You can, and again, you might be worried about what your friends and neighbors might think about you. Don't worry about that. <laughs> what they will think. You know, We spend a lot of our life energy worrying about what they think. But have you ever met them? You know, the ones whose job it is to make judgments about your life? I never met them. <laughs> but we worry a lot about what they will think. So don't worry about them for the time being. So just get in your, when you get in your car, there you are, sitting in the driver's seat. Before you touch the wheel, or you, you turn the key, or push the button, or whatever it is that you do with the start the car nowadays, just let yourself sit in the driver's seat. And don't do anything. Just think of it as your meditation cushion. Just sit there. Just be still. One, two, three, four, five. Then turn the key. And so during the day, uh, you know, you can you know, uh, be creative about how you uh, uh, how you develop this. But uh, it's astonishing when, when you might feel like, oh, I've got no space in the day. Oh, my life is just one continuous rush. It's just one thing after another after another. If you just take the trouble to develop these little micro-meditations, it's astonishing how much space there is in the day. Like in this room, you might think, well, this room is really crowded. There's you know, 60 people here. Actually, there's a much more space than people in this room. <laughs> but we don't notice it because the, the people catch our attention. But similarly... There's a lot more space in the day than we realize. And all of us can afford to take five extra seconds, you know, half a dozen times a day, a dozen times a day. So uh, whatever the, the pattern of your, your life might be, I would really encourage this. And some of you might be thinking, oh, this is a total waste of time, absolutely ridiculous. That's you know, five seconds. What difference is that going to make? Well, <laughs> I would uh, encourage you to, to try it out and see, just to listen to that inner critic, that the, um, the, the uh, uh, intelligent cynic <laughs> who knows best. Well, invite her to just <laughs> sit over to the side for the time being. But thank you very much for sharing. Let's just, you can sit over there for, for now. And just uh, try this kind of thing out. Just, and during the course of the day, also, what I would, uh, what I like to do when uh, I was uh, living here in, in uh, Amravati from eighty-five to ninety-five, which is the the, the first um, uh, ten years of uh, 
of Amaravati's existence. It opened up in August of '84, so I was here for that, from the year after it opened for another ten years, and it was a huge amount of building work and activity. It was a very, very um, dynamic place <laughs> to be living, and uh, there was a constant flow of, of work projects and all these buildings that we're, like, we're sitting in that the as some of you might not realize, but none of these buildings were insulated when we first came here. They were just like uh, scout huts built. There. Originally, they were built as a summer camp. Um, and so there nothing, nothing was insulated, nothing was heated. So all of these buildings, we took all the, the wooden cladding off the outside, increased the thickness of the wall by two inches by putting wooden battens on all the, on all the, um, the uprights, and then filled the walls with six inches of, of rock wool, and then uh, planed off all of the um, the timber cladding, and then then nailed it all back up again on the outside. So all the monastery buildings. <laughs> so there was a lot of work going on here in those days, and uh, but it was you know, very sort of inspiring and enjoyable as well. But what what I used to do was uh, uh, in the same spirit of what I was describing with these micro meditations, sort of stopping during the course of the day and finding pauses. What I would do would be I would go to the work site when the work wasn't happening. So, like Im- immediately after the morning puja, say it finished at six thirty, that I would go to the, the the building that we were we were working on, just uh, say here in the retreat center maybe, and so this whole this whole hall has got ripped apart and, and the place is you know, filled with bales of, of rock wool and piles of of uh, lumber and and such like. And no one else is around. There's sort of workhorses and saws and hammers and, and such like. And I would just, I would just sit down on the floor on a, on a bale of the of the insulation, and just, and just sit in the middle of the worksite, and just take in the silence, <coughs> take in the silence and the stillness. And so the, the all of the shapes and the smell and the, all of the perceptions of the work scene were there. No, no busyness, no people, no, no thing going on. And then, uh, as the uh, the work scene began after the the, the breakfast time, say eight, eight o'clock, eight fifteen, everyone shows up and we've got our, our work gear on and, and uh, dust masks and the whole place is uh, filled with activity and noise and people and movement. Something in the back of the of the mind remembers that stillness that was here before, before it all began. And then at the end of the day, often, like uh, uh, after tea time, or, or um, sometimes when the work had gone on late, <laughs> after the evening puja time, again, I would, uh, maybe like 9.30 or 10 at night, I'd come into the area where the work had been going on. And again, just to sit down, and then just to perceive, taking the, the work, the workplace, you know, with the moonlight coming through the windows, and nobody else around, and just... Seeing the you know the workhorses and the saws with the moon you know the moonlight shining on them and perfectly silent and still just the smell of rock wool dust in the air <laughs> and just the, again feeling the silence after the space and the silence and the stillness so that uh, what that what that would do would be then in in the course of uh, of the busyness and activity of the day. There's that residual memory, that, that something in the heart that, recollect, that recollects the, the space within which all this is happening, the stillness that lies behind it. So we're reconfiguring the way that we relate to the, the familiar places. Or just like in your own homes, you know, places that are, are like, like I said, standing in the kitchen. 
go to your 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 if you have a living room area in your home your 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 flat wherever you live just go and sit in the living room and don't do anything don't read a book don't turn on the tv don't put your eye, <laughs> your earphones in just go and and you can and maybe sit in an unusual spot you know sit on the windowsill or sit on the carpet and just just be there with no one else around and just uh, let, let yourself really take in the nature of that space when no thing is happening. And so then, when, when there's a, the rest of the family around or things going on, or other activities there, again, something in the mind remembers that the space is there. So I would do the same thing with, with business meetings. If there was an English Sangha Trust meeting with uh, all sorts of decisions needing to be made and uh, people showing up with suits and ties and such like, <laughs> then uh, I would uh, arrive at the place where we were going to have the meeting beforehand, just sort of sit, uh, sit on the chair and just take in the, you know, the table and the notepads oh. and the agendas and minutes and such like, and just think. And then also you can use a, a few little verbal cues like English Sangha Trust meeting. <laughs> or or just, uh, just remind yourself of the silence before. And then again, when the meeting's all over, everyone's gone, then there's a silence after. Just as with in that exercise of noticing the space before a thought, and then the thought, and then the space after, it keeps the whole thought in context. We can do this with our, our, our whole world. In the in a place of work, if you work in a school, going into a classroom when there's no kids in it, just taking in the blackboard, the desks, the smell of the chalk, or the... the um, uh, the whiteboard markers. <laughs> it's the feeling that the this the space that's there. So again, you can sort of fill in the gaps for yourself and uh, and uh, develop this or, or or say work it into your own living situation. Whether you're in a school, whether you work in a school, or you're in a Buddhist center, or you're in a you uh, you know, have a you're between jobs at the moment, <laughs> or whatever it might be, just uh, you, you get the, the message of, in a sense, re, uh, reworking our perceptions, shaking up our habitual perceptions, because what creates that sense of, of endlessly going from one thing to another, the, the, the caught in that, that uh, relentless becoming, is really just our, our, our habituation. The mind becoming complacent, the mind just sort of getting conditioned and following habits, is caught into a, a, a rut. And so, we, these are exercises that we can use to help shake up our perceptions and to, to not just get caught into automatic activity, but to, to see familiar things in a different way. Another of the, of the things that um, that we've been using uh, and uh, probably you're not very conscious of because it's what what you do when you're on a retreat is living by the precepts. So um, the, a lot of the the peacefulness of our minds uh, in a retreat situation is because we're not doing anything to disturb ourselves. Yeah, I often wonder what it would be like to hold a retreat. Where you actually don't do any meditation, but people keep silence and live on the eight precepts for a week together. 
and uh, I have a, my pet theory is that uh, it would be really very enjoyable. <laughs> but uh, because a lot of the the, the blessings of, of a retreat and a situation is because none of you have done anything that is really regrettable. You know, maybe somebody amongst you took an extra slice of of dessert. Again, I'm not a mind reader. Don't worry. No one was recording the consumption of that extra fig, fig crumble. But you, well, it was so lonely. It was just sitting there by itself. You know, it's going it's to be thrown away. I mean, you, know, you don't want to waste it, do you? <laughs> but that's probably the worst that any of us have done in the last uh, the last week or so. And just the the mind not not having to remember having um, done. You know, Hurtful or selfish or, or unkind, greedy things that we're not having, we haven't uh, told any lies, we haven't engaged in any kind of sexual misconduct, we haven't killed anything. I hope <laughs> no one's been murdered during the course of this retreat. We've got the same number of retreats we started out with. So that just that simple, uh, the, the 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 beautiful quality of living according to the precepts. So obviously, outside of the retreat situation, then the the, sta- the, the standard that's encouraged is living by the five precepts. But uh, that's not a, a small thing in and of itself, because that's a, a in terms of Buddhist psychology, the basis for self-respect and the quality of well-being is the practice of of generosity and of virtue. Dana and sila are the the basis of what you call a positive self-image or a sense of well-being and self-respect. The basis of contentment and happiness, in uh, in terms of the Buddha's psychology, is generosity and and uh, morality, you know, virtue. So living in a, a way that's gentle, that is respectful, um, that is honest. So that is how we uh, we develop a, a, and create the causes for uh, qualities of of, uh, e- of ease and contentment, self-respect. But it's a, I know it can, people might think of this as a very simplistic way to relate to psychology. Um, uh, anything sort of you might not think there's anything psychotherapeutic about it. But often, if you don't do things that that are regrettable, you don't have to regret them. You follow? So if you don't have, if I haven't done anything harmful or, or selfish or cruel, I don't have to remember having done that. So I don't. I'm, I'm not creating the causes for self-criticism. I don't have to to remember having done something you know, selfish or harmful, uh, because uh, it hasn't been done. So therefore, I don't have to remember it. And then you might be thinking, well, so what? <laughs> but uh, it's a it's no small thing that uh, when we are we are say, developing generosity, a basic relationship to the world of. Un- unselfishness, when we're being ready to give our, our material aid or our time, our, our, our attention to others, when we're living in a way that's, that's honest and, and uh, virtuous, that's noble, then uh, that creates the causes for, for a, a great deal of, of ease and contentment. We don't have to remember anything that uh, that we've done that's really harmful or, or destructive, that is dishonest. We don't have to be worried about that lie being found out about, or that that uh, uh, say the um, uh, imaginative uh, 
relationship to the tax returns. <laughs> it might have been a, economical with the truth <laughs> in filling in our taxes. You know, we don't have to, if, if we've been honest, we don't have to worry about the them <laughs> finding out about what we've done with our tax returns. Nothing to hide. So no anxiety. Uh, I often tell a, a story about a, a, a woman that I met, a, a Thai woman um, in San Francisco, who was a single mother. And uh, she told me this story herself uh, about three or four years ago. And so she, uh, her son was about nine years old at this time, and she and her son lived in a, a small apartment together. And she worked for a, an estate agent, a, a, a real estate agent. Um, in San Francisco, and um, without going boring you with too much detail, what happened was one day uh, somebody came into the office and needed to, to uh, sell their property really, really fast. And so she happened to be behind the desk, and so she received this this uh, this client and sort of and, and got uh, everything underway. And what uh, the way that it it, it worked was that. Um, the the client said, "I don't care what you sell it for. I have to sell it you know, as soon as possible. Um, whatever money you can get for it, that that's fine." And so um, they, uh, <coughs> she managed to, um, uh, or they they accepted the property uh, um, for uh, four hundred thousand, and then she managed to turn it around and sell it on for six hundred and fifty in the same day. And uh, because of the urgency of the of the deal, and the person that the the, the client was so eager to sell it as quickly as possible, um, and she was able to make this this sale very fast. She was really really pleased because the the, the property was was heavily undervalued because he was so eager to sell it. And so about four o'clock that afternoon, after she'd made this sale for six hundred and fifty thousand, she suddenly realised, "Hang on a minute." I'm the only person who knows about this. I'm the only person who knows that actually, the we gave, you know the, the client uh, got four hundred for it, and that we sold it for six fifty. Oh. Oh. <laughs> if I play my cards right, that could be two hundred fifty thousand into my pocket. So uh, she said that uh, then. Um, she thought about this, and she realized, no, I can't do this. And she said that uh, what she did was that she went home, that that, that she told her boss um, uh, and uh, what the, the real price that she had paid and, the, and also the real amount she sold, her, sold it on for. And, um, and then when she went home, she told her son uh, what had happened. And she said, you know that we've been talking about moving to a bigger apartment? If we had a bit more money, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know that you really wanted that new bicycle for Christmas, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> says, well, I I hate to tell you this, but um, we definitely can't afford the the uh, a new apartment, and we I still probably can't afford that that new bicycle for you. Huh. So why are we talking about this? <laughs> but uh, he was pretty good at, at uh, mathematics. Uh, he was he was uh, quite a, a mathematics whiz, 
and so she uh, uh, would help him with his homework, and then also she would um, do the the bookkeeping for the uh, for the estate agency and with him. And she and she goes through the books with him and show him what she was doing, and he liked to help add up the numbers and do all the calculations and so on. And so she said, "Well, I have to tell you what happened today." And she she described this incident and and uh, uh, how this uh, this deal had come in and how. Um, she had been tempted, and she also showed him in the books how she could have <laughs> rejigged the numbers. See, look, see, I just all I had to do was change this number here, and no one else would have known. It's not recorded anywhere else. And says, so, so why, why didn't you do it, Mom? She said, Well, because uh, because I care about you. So because even though you know, you know, we can look at this and you can say, yeah, no, no one would know. But the fact is. I would know. <laughs> and the fact is that I would know and then I would be worried that someone was going to find out. And then if uh, if uh, the truth came out, then I would be in jail and you wouldn't, uh, not only would you not have a dad, but you wouldn't have a mom either. And so then yeah, we'd really be in trouble. And so that, uh, uh, but I wanted you to know because I felt uh, that it was more important that uh, I'm... Uh, not keeping anything secret from you, and also I'm acting in in an honest way, uh, and that even though we might have less and we have to to live in this this little apartment for a bit longer, still um, it's far better that we are able to live without any kind of anxiety, uh, any kind of fear uh, of of losing what we've got or me being sort of taken away by the authorities. Far better that we live in a in a smaller situation and have no anxiety, then we we have more of what we want, but yet there's this this shadow uh, hanging over me. Says, do you, do you understand? He said, "Yeah," <laughs> and uh, she kind of imitated him. We were, we were sitting in this this uh, res- this Thai restaurant in San Francisco, where she was telling me the story, and she imitated this sort of expression on his face, like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I get it." And uh, and then uh, she uh, and then asked him, "So do you do you understand why I, I did that?" And she he said, yeah, "Yeah, so yeah, that's cool. Don't worry about it." <laughs> and that he and uh, he really did appreciate that. And I thought this was the most uh, wonderful um, gift that the mother could give to to her son. And I think also that the the, the owner of the estate agency was pretty impressed with her. <laughs> He probably gave her a bonus for being so honest, uh, and also that she she confessed that she was seriously tempted, a you know, quarter of a million dollars just. <laughs> but uh, I felt it was tremendously wise on her part, and also it's the kindest gift because you know that that, that uh, young man will remember that for the rest of his life. And he will he will have that as a wonderful example. Of his mother's integrity and how much she cares for him, that she's prepared to to um, live in a, a, a state of uh, more privation and difficulty, uh, uh, rather than to to live in a state of, of anxiety or, or or kind of risking their well-being, or just living in a state of of, uh, of uh, self-criticism and uh, lack of self-respect, knowing that uh, she had uh, stolen the money or you know, cheated, lied. And also, just the way that karma tends to work—you know—that these 
these things, no matter how sure we are that no one could ever, 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 ever find out. It's the kind of thing where two people meet at a party and they say, uh, chatting uh, together and say, oh, you know, uh, I, uh, where do you live? Oh, I, I'm, on, I'm on Sutter. Oh, I used to have a place on Sutter. Yeah. Yeah, wh- wh- whereabouts is that? Oh, no, yeah, six, uh, 650 Sutter. Oh, 650 Sutter? Yeah, I had an apartment there, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm in apartment C. Yeah, apartment C. I used to own that place. Yeah. Yeah, gee, it was a real shame. You know, I, had to, I had to sell it in a rush. I, I only got pennies for it. Oh, really? Well, what, what did you... <laughs> How much did you get for it? Oh, yeah, only 400. I mean, it was worth way more than that. Oh, 400. So when did you sell it? <laughs> oh, oh, interesting. So it, it didn't happen that way. Uh, but uh, you know, that's how sometimes life uh, steers things. So this is also uh, a way that we can take the spirit of this retreat and the environment of the retreat with us, is just to sustain that quality of integrity and, uh, and honesty and harmlessness, that quality that uh, even if the people around you are scanning left and right, <laughs> you don't have to do that. All the people are swearing and, and lying and, and, and cheating each other, without being sort of uptight and moralistic, we can choose not to join in with that. We can choose not to um, be a part of that. We can, we can choose to just uh, keep our own counsel, to, to sustain our own way of being. And, uh, and it's uh, extraordinary how that quality of, of uh, uh, straightforwardness and honesty and gentleness, respectfulness, it creates a basis of calm, a basis of contentment a real ease within us that is a, a very direct support for concentration. You know, if you you haven't done anything regrettable during the day, you don't have to forget, uh, you don't have to let go of it at the end of the, the day when you sit down to meditate. So that uh, it's a, a very powerful and direct cause for, for supporting concentration, samadhi. Also, I've um, talked a lot about developing mindfulness of the body, and of course, even outside of Amravati, your body still goes with you. <laughs> and so, just uh, developing this uh, an attention to the the different postures: sitting, standing, walking, lying down, as we go about uh, our lives here. That ju- just because you happen to be walking along a pavement, or you're, you're walking through the underground, or you're walking through a corridor in the in your, your office or your school or uh, across your living room carpet, it's still completely legal to have your attention in your feet. <laughs> you don't have to be fixated on the, the meeting that you've got to go to or the, the bus that you're, you, you're, you're aiming to catch. You can keep your feet uh, and your mind unified. But uh, just uh, setting that intention at the beginning of a day can be very helpful. So that, uh, And this is a kind of practice I've done a, a lot, just... In the, in the early morning as you begin your day, just to set that resolution. Okay, whenever I'm walking anywhere, to any, any, any situation during the day, to, uh, it's my intention to bring my mind, my attention into my feet, just to feel the feet touching the ground as I walk along. And even though you forget and you get lost and get distracted, just uh, mostly you'll remember and then use that as a, a way of grounding the attention, bringing the attention into the present. The Bursa made a uh, one, one winter retreat. He spent about three weeks talking about going through doors. He would develop themes, 
meditation seems uh, sometimes sometimes quite surprising. And so, for three weeks, he talked about nothing except mindfulness of going through doors. You, you'd be amazed at how much there is to say about going through a door. <laughs> you think I can talk a lot? You know, so Lumpur Samadhi is even more expansive. But just to, to do that at uh, the beginning of a day, just to set the intention, okay, whenever I go through a door, just to bring attention to that, approaching the door, the sense of not knowing what's on the other side of it, the sense, the sense of arriving at the door, the feeling of taking hold of the door handle, the sense of anticipation as, the door, as you open the door, and then revelation as you find out what's on the other side, the feeling of accomplishment and moving on as you go through the door, close it behind you, the delights of the door are many and various. <laughs> and you think, it's just a door. I mean, what's the big deal? But, like anything in life, if we bring attention to it, there's, there's a lot that can be learned from that. So just paying attention every time you go through a door, into a car, out of a car, into a building, out of a building, into a, a lift, out of a lift, just noticing <coughs> that, that going, through a, uh, going through doorways. As I mentioned, uh, I think a few days ago, how on one uh, winter retreat, the, uh, a, a, a three-month retreat in the the uh, the forest at Chithurst, uh, on my tenth range retreat as a monk, I spent uh, living in a in a hut in a kuti in the forest at Chithurst, and for that that three months, I just made the uh, a, a resolution to focus on anicca, on impermanence. Just, uh, to make that a, a theme for, for meditation. And uh, it doesn't have to be anything very complicated. You're not trying to sort of um, make your your uh, your life into a whole kind of intellectual analysis, but just using a simple theme like anicca. So again, like you can use the, uh, the act of walking as something to focus on the beginning of a day, just to, to set the intention. Okay, throughout today, I'll make the effort to notice the quality of change, whether it's changing thought or a changing sensation or a changing cloud or a changing traffic light, uh, a changing mood in the other people in my family, just to notice the quality of Anicca, just to, to bring attention to that. And uh, it's not a complicated program. <laughs> it's very simple. Very, uh, and you might think, well, what, what, what difference is that going to make? Or, or, yeah, I know everything's impermanent, so I'm... Like <laughs> you know who done it, you know. It's, it's kind of as a theory, as an idea. Yeah, it's 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 easy to understand, but it's not the theory of it. It's more the moment-to-moment recognition of oh, there's a mood changing, there's a traffic light changing, there's a traffic starting, the traffic stopping, the the there's a, a sensation changing, there's a, a, a you know a, a sound changing, a word changing. And that simple recognition uh, of that quality uh, of all experience, again, like noticing the world is happening in the mind, it has a, a profoundly unifying and integrating quality. It brings together the, the thoughts in the mind, the, the memories that we have, the perceptions of the things around us that we keep recollecting, oh, it all has the nature of, of change. Everything is uh, functioning according to the same patterns, the same laws. Another aspect of this that uh, that Lumpur Cha would often recommend is to develop uh, 
So when we when we talk about change or Anicca as change, it's in some to some extent that's describing the objective quality of it. So that we can think of change as being almost like a a physical quality of the sense world, the material world. That that uh, yeah, objects change. Um, if it's a thing, it's in a state of transformation and change. But at the other end of the subject side of it, the felt experience of change. Is the is the feeling of uncertainty, because we don't know what that is going to change. We know it's changing, but we don't know what it's going to change into. So, uh, so that anicca, uh, Lumpur Cha would more often render the word anicca as uncertainty, my nair, in Thai, my nair. It's not certain. It's not a sure thing, because that's the felt sense of of change, when when the heart meets with the experience of of uh, things in a state of transformation, you don't know exactly what's happening. You don't know what it's going to change into. You don't know what the whole story is. So the feeling is that of uncertainty. So that this is um, far more commonly what way that Lumpur Cha would talk about anicca, anicca, or developing the perception of anicca, anicca sanya, would be to consciously remind yourself that everything is uncertain. And so, particularly around judgments, like the mind says, oh, that's great. And then he says, it's not a sure thing. That's terrible. It's not a sure thing. Oh, I'm on my way to a meeting. It's not a sure thing. <laughs> Things are going really well. It's not a sure thing. It's all falling apart. It's not a sure thing. And it's uh, astonishing the range of uh, uh, experiences and items that, that we can perceive and know during the course of a day that that is applicable to. So our opinions, our judgments, our memories, our likes and dislikes, uh, calling something good, calling it bad, uh, what uh, what shape the world is taking, or what things are, just to keep reminding ourselves, it's not a sure thing, it's not, uh, it's not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure. And as he, uh, as he would often say, this is the, the, the gateway to wisdom. This is the the standard of the noble ones because if we if we always recollect that everything is uncertain, then it it unplugs our habits of attachment. So when you're trying to keep something, then uh, you, the the uh, recollection of, of uncertainty reminds you it's not keepable. If we're afraid of being uh, of being impacted by something or imposed on uh, uh, something's going to impose on on us, and we're dreading it, we're the the um, the quality of uncertainty recollecting that is reminds us oh it's not going to be so much of a burden or it might it's not going to be so unbearable it can't be a, a permanent difficulty so he'd say it's like a when you build a dam you need to have a, a sluice or a spillway so that the the, the water can overflow so a Nietzsche is like the spillway it's like the the overflow um, uh, so that our our, uh, our hearts, excitement about what we like, our, our dread of what we dislike, uh, the uh, feelings of attraction and aversion, they're kept in balance. They're, they're kept from from uh, so getting out of control because there's a safety valve for the recollection of, of anicca. So again, it might not seem like very much, but when we apply it, it's, it's extraordinary how much this helps to bring our, our world into balance and sustains this environment of of Dhamma that we're able to experience and know during the, the, the retreat. Of course, you have to remember 
to to bring this to mind. But again, it's, it can be helpful at the beginning of a day just to set the intention. Okay, throughout the day, whenever I see anything, hear, smell, taste, or touch anything, whenever there's an opinion, a judgment, a plan, a like or a dislike, I'll make the effort to remember it's uncertain. You know, it's not a sure thing. Or uh, another phrase that uh, that Lumpur would use is, um, whenever your mind makes a statement about anything or, or conceives a, an idea about something, just say to it, "Is that so?" Like, well, I'm going to be leaving the retreat on on Wednesday. Oh, is that so? <laughs> this this has been the best retreat I've ever been on. Oh, is that so? This has really been a challenge. Oh, is that so? What we like, what we dislike, what's familiar, unfamiliar, approval, disapproval, just to keep bringing that, uh, is that so? Is that, is that, uh, is that a fact? And uh, it helps to keep it in, in, in context. That, uh, Like I was talking last night about the, 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 this wonderful, wonderfully mysterious and strange language of the Piraha people, that uh, their, their conception of objects and things and form, color and such like is totally different from ours. So that when we say, you know, this is a microphone or this is Saturday, we can recollect, well, is that so? <laughs> is that the whole story? You know, and, we, and it helps us to remember, oh, that's just my version of reality. That's just my, my uh, perceived patterns. That's the language that I use. That's uh, my uh, uh, set of conventions that uh, that uh, are I'm using. But it's not the whole story, and it's touching into that aspect of the heart that knows this can't be the whole story. So, uh, when we are talking about developing insight, developing wisdom, it's not just in the silence and stillness of the the, the shrine room here, or or walking up and down in the under the the beautiful blue skies and the, the, the wispy clouds of the English summer, it's, uh, it's, it's always here. The opportunity is always here to develop wisdom, no matter how busy or noisy you know, the world might be. Also, the Nada sound does not stop at the borders of Amravati. <laughs> well, you come out the gate and suddenly, shh, Nada. <laughs> nada is also the Spanish word for nothing. So, so that... Uh, interesting uh, combination of meanings in that way so that uh, you get uh, the nada continues you don't get nada nada <laughs> as the, as you leave the gate but the nada continues even on the london underground even in the airplane it carries on and the, the buddha pointed out that you know when when uh, we are aware of the quality of anicca when the heart opens and uh, is attentive to the perception of impermanence, then that directly supports the insight into not-self. When we see everything is, is uncertain, then that's also the aspects of, of who and what I am, this, this body, this personality. That directly supports that, say, challenging of, uh, of the habits of identification. So the insight into Anicca directly supports the insight into anatta. And when the truth of not-self is recognized, that uh, directly uh, um, undermines 
dissolves or helps the, the, the quality of wisdom to see through the self-view, through asmimana, conceit of identity. And as the, the Buddha says in this uh, discourse to, uh, to Megia, he says, uh, when, the, when the, the heart awakens to the truth of, of not-self, then that uh, leads to the, the dissolving, the dissolution of the conceit, I am, the asmimana. And that is Nibbāna, here and now. When the I am is seen through, when that's recognized as transparent, empty, when that, that is let go of, then that is Nibbāna, here and now. And you don't think of Nibbāna as some kind of glorious sort of super-duper heaven off at the, you know, over the rainbow. <laughs> but uh, even in the, you know, over breakfast with your family, even in the, on the underground, even in the, in the, back in your, your Buddhist center or your uh, pottering around your garden or you know, out on the M25 or the, the A303. Nibbana is, is that quality of, of clarity and peacefulness that's, that's ever-present whenever the grasping stops, whenever the heart lets go of that uh, becoming urge. It's, it's always accessible to us. And so I would encourage that to be something that you really allow that in, allow that that intuition to to be truly known and acknowledged and given given life, given strength, and then there's there's no reason why the retreat has to stop on Wednesday. Just uh, carries on wherever we are. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening.